been on study leave, and um, thank you to the church for giving the pastors a study leave, because I can speak personally that uh, it is a stressful job, and sometimes you just need to recharge. I'm uh, stuck on the New American Standard Version, which uh, I've read for the last, oh, here's one up here, Bobby, which I've read for the last uh, 50 plus years, and so... Um, I'm going to read from that version here this morning. Luke 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, him being Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table, at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, and he owed five, one owed 500 denarii, a denarii was about a day's wage, and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at, ta at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, we come to your word and pray that your Holy Spirit would use it according to your purpose as we read in Isaiah 55 that your word would not return to you empty without accomplishing the purpose for which you sent it forth. And... Um, that you would apply it in every heart as I cannot. Through your spirit, we ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, I had a friend named Glenn. Uh, I met him after he had gotten out of Tehachapi State Prison where he was doing five years to life for drug dealing and some other charges. One night in prison, in the emptiness of his soul, he stumbled into the prison chapel 
and he heard the good news that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And Glenn knelt down there in that chapel and repented of his sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And later he found out that at the very moment he did that, his dear godly mother was at home on her knees pleading with the Lord for her wayward son. Glenn was dramatically transformed from that moment, and God put it in Glenn's heart, a burning desire to tell everyone he met about the Savior who had delivered him. And I mean everyone. I remember one night, the two of us were walking along the boardwalk in Seal Beach, the sidewalk that runs along the beach there in California, and uh, we could hardly carry on a conversation because every person that would pass the other way, he would stop and excitedly tell them about Jesus. Another time, I was sitting in a restaurant, way on the other side of the restaurant, when Glenn walked in, and he saw me, and he said, praise the Lord, Brother Steve. Well, now he had the attention of every single person in the restaurant, and so as he proceeded to make his way over to the booth where I was sitting, he would stop and say, God saved me when I was in prison. Do you want to read about it? Here. And he would hand them a tract that he had written up with his testimony on it. Now, I believe God had given Glenn a special gift that I don't have to tell everyone about Jesus. But apart from that, Glenn had something that I wanted for myself and I believe every Christian should desire to have, and that is Glenn had a fervent, demonstrable love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Glenn's experience with the Lord was not just a formal go-to-church, ho-hum, did that this week, go to church again next week kind of experience with the Lord, but Glenn was keenly aware of where he would have been if Christ had not reached down into his despair and darkness and saved him. And so Glenn would often say, I've been forgiven much, and so I love Jesus much. And that comment bothered me, to be honest, because I don't have a dramatic sin in the gutter to salvation kind of testimony. Uh, one of my earliest memories was kneeling beside my mom and dad's bed and praying to receive Christ, and I grew up in the church, and uh, I, I have a pin, seven years, perfect attendance <laughs> in Sunday school, and I think I probably was there more than seven years, but uh, I got the pin for seven, and uh, I certainly had my share of normal childhood sins and probably some others added to it, but honestly, I was never rebellious toward my parents, even as a teenager. I knew they loved me and cared for me, and I didn't want to do anything to hurt them. Uh, I've never been drunk in my life or not even close to being drunk. I have never used drugs. I, I've never been arrested. I've only got two traffic tickets in almost 60 years of driving. So, I, you know, I'm pretty clean as far as the record goes compared to Glenn. 
And as I thought about his comment, it bothered me because I thought, well, I haven't been given, forgiven nearly as much as, as Glenn has. And so I wondered, well, how can I develop the deep love for Jesus that Glenn obviously has when I don't have that kind of record? And I knew the answer wasn't go out and rack up a bunch of sins, you know, so that grace might abound. Uh, but Glenn got me thinking about this story that he would quote often about how this woman uh, had been forgiven much and so she loved much. And uh, I still have a long way to go. And honestly, it's, it's a lifelong thing. It's kind of like your love in your marriage. It doesn't run on autopilot. You have to devote attention to it and be focused on it. Uh, and it's the same with love for the Lord. But I would encourage you to meditate on this story often. And I want to look at it with you this morning. Uh, we need to meet first the three main characters in the story whom we could label as the Pharisee, the prostitute, and the prophet. Uh, the Pharisee was named Simon, and just to clarify, this is not the same Simon you encounter in John chapter 12, where Jesus, right before he went to the cross, was in the home of Simon the leper, and Mary, uh, the sister of Martha, Mary of Bethany, uh, did a similar action of anointing Jesus there with perfume. Uh, Simon was a common name. This Simon was a Pharisee, and that means that he was outwardly a good, upright, moral man. Uh, he attempted to keep the law of Moses. He tithed his income more meticulously than you or I would ever tithe our incomes. He fasted regularly. He would pray at least three times a week. He would be at the synagogue every time the doors were open. And, of course, he would be in Jerusalem for the three annual feasts that all Jewish men went up to. But he was a decent man who was respected as a religious leader in the community. I think we could describe his relationship to Jesus as... Formal, distant, and somewhat cool. Uh, he invited Jesus to his home for dinner, probably thinking, well, this young teacher's making quite a stir in Israel, and it would be good to interact on biblical and theological issues with him. And that way, the next time I meet with my Pharisee friends and they bring him up, I'll be in the know. I can say, oh, I've had dinner with that young radical and I can tell you what he thinks. Um, as Simon met with Jesus, though, he had no sense of personal need for the message that Jesus was proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, he's a Pharisee. He didn't need to repent. Um, why would he need to repent? He was a good man. He was a religious leader. Jesus' message was for the rabble out there somewhere, kind of like John the Baptist had been. And <clears throat> as a Pharisee, I'm sure Simon projected an air of having it together. After all, he had formally studied the law. He could probably quote most of it by memory. Now, Simon didn't greet Jesus warmly. Uh, scholars debate whether withholding water for his feet 
and not giving a greeting kiss or giving oil to anoint his head was rude or not, but I think certainly we can conclude his reception of Jesus was not as enthusiastic and warm as it would have been had it been the high priest. You know, if it had been a higher up in the Jewish system, he would have gotten the full treatment. Uh, Jesus, well, you know, he didn't want to project and have the word get back to any of his fellow Pharisees that he'd been overly chummy toward this radical young teacher. He wanted to keep some distance and didn't want anyone to think that he had gone overboard for Jesus. So that's the Pharisee. The second character in the story we might call the prostitute. Uh, I believe that Luke deliberately leaves her unnamed to guard her privacy. Uh, She's just called a sinner, and probably she was a prostitute. Again, she was not Mary of Bethany. She was not Mary Magdalene. but she was openly known in whatever city this was for her sinful ways. And when she entered the room, I'm sure that eyebrows would be raised, the Pharisees that were in attendance would nudge each other at the dinner table and gesture over toward her saying, look who just walked in, you know? And uh, I think that Jesus' question in verse 44 is kind of humorous when he says, "Uh, Simon, do you see this woman? Uh, And no doubt he saw that woman. In fact, that was probably the only thing he saw when she walked in. Now, it was common for people to be able to come to these kind of dinners and sit around the periphery, not at the dinner table, but uh, listen to the conversation going on. Uh, That was common, but I think it's safe to say that Simon hardly expected to see that woman or anybody like her. Now, by his question to Simon, Jesus is about to showcase a prostitute as an example for a Pharisee, which was unthinkable. I mean, you couldn't have picked a more wide contrast and shocking comparison than to say, Simon, do you see this woman? Implied, you should be like she is. And that would have been shocking. Uh, Simon had not really seen that woman. He had not seen that she had something that he needed. She had a loving and thankful heart toward the Savior that Simon lacked. As I said, at best, Simon's relationship with the Savior was distant and keep your hands up, keep your guard. You don't want to get too chummy with this guy. And she was willing to come into a room where she knew she would endure stares and whispers and muffled laughter among the men as they said, look who just showed up. Can you believe it? She's here, you know? Uh, And she was willing to openly express her love for Jesus because of what he had done for her, even if it meant public humiliation for her. 
Now, Luke doesn't tell us, but I think we have to assume that this woman had come under Jesus' teaching prior to this occasion. Because Jesus' words to her in verse 48, your sins have been forgiven, and verse 50, your faith has saved you, uh, those are words of assurance. They're not first-time declarations. And probably <clears throat> this sinful woman had been in the crowd when she had heard Jesus speak of the things of God, and she sensed, here's a man who doesn't condemn me. She had heard the Pharisees teach, the way to God, keep the law, you know, uh, keep all the ceremonial laws, keep the Sabbath, do this, do that. And it overwhelmed this poor woman as she thought, there's no way. I can't begin. Where, where do I even start with my past? And they certainly weren't welcoming her to get in the game and try. Uh, they wanted to keep their distance, you know. If Jesus knew this man or this woman was a sinner, he wouldn't even let her touch him, is what Simon is thinking. But then this woman maybe heard Jesus say, as he says in Luke 5.32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And she heard about greedy tax collectors who had been saved, such as Matthew, one of the 12, and in Luke 19, Zacchaeus, a terrible greedy tax collector in Jericho who got saved. And she probably heard of another sinful woman to whom Jesus had said, neither do I condemn you, go your way, and from now on, sin no more. And Jesus' words gave this sinful woman hope, something the Pharisees never gave her. They just discouraged her. You know, you, you don't have a chance. And Jesus, she thought, offered hope to a sinner like her. And so she had repented of her sins, put her trust in this one who came, as it says in Luke 19.10, to seek and to save that which is lost. And this woman was lost. Now all that had happened, I think, before this day in Simon's home. Now when the woman learned that he was nearby, she determines to go and express to him her deep gratitude for all that he had done for her. At a dinner like this, you have to understand, it says he was reclining at table, and um, <clears throat> as in when we were in uh, a Muslim section of China once, uh, we were invited into some Muslim homes right after Ramadan, and they have little tables about this high, and you're not supposed to put your feet toward the table, your feet are away, and you lean on your left arm, and you know, take whatever the goodies are with your right hand and that sort of thing. So your head is toward the table, your feet are away from the table. And she planned to slip in and anoint this uh, wonderful man who had saved her with her expensive perfume as, she, as he reclined there at table. And I believe that when she got there, she was overcome with emotion and she began to weep. And her tears began to wet Jesus' dusty feet, and she began to wipe them with her hair. Now again, it was the custom in that culture for a woman not to let her hair down in public. But this woman, who had let her hair down many times in her occupation, 
now let them down in worship for Jesus as she wiped his feet wet with her tears with her hair and anointed him with the perfume and kept kissing his feet. And kissing the feet was a, a mark of reverence for a uh, leading rabbi. But all of this she did, not caring what anyone else in the room thought. And I'm sure there were gasps and there were stares and there were nudges and there was chuckles and there was just incredulity on the part of the, uh, the other Pharisees there. And she didn't care. And so this woman stands in contrast to this cool, detached, academic Pharisee in his relationship to Jesus, if you even want to call it that. And here she is just pouring out her love and devotion to the Savior who had forgiven her so many sins. Now, before we look at the third character in the drama, let me ask you a question. Which of these two characters do you most identify with in your relationship with Jesus? Are you more like the cool, calm, detached Pharisee? You got it pretty much together spiritually, you know? You know your theology. You got it all down. Don't, don't get excited about it, folks. Let's be cool. Let's be calm. Let's keep it together. And you really don't feel a need daily, weekly, at any time for the forgiveness that Jesus offers so freely. Or like this woman and like my friend Glenn, do you see that without Jesus, you would be hopelessly, helplessly lost in sin? Who knows where you might be in prison, in the gutter, homeless? divorced 15 times, who knows what would have happened to you had Jesus not broken into your life. And like this woman, are you willing to express deep feelings of gratitude and love for Jesus? Who cares what other people think? What does Jesus think? That's what you want when you gather to worship Jesus. And so I think Luke wants us to take an honest look at these two characters and shockingly say, we should be like this prostitute, not like this Pharisee. She's a former prostitute. Then the third character is the prophet. And I call him that because Simon says, if this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is who is touching him. And I believe one of Luke's main reasons for reporting this story to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is to reflect on the question, who is this man, Jesus? And I submit to you that that is the most important question you can answer in your entire lifetime. If you get it right, and you see that Jesus is the eternal God in human flesh who bore your sin on the cross, everything in your life will be different and everything in your eternity will be different. If you get it wrong, it will not change your life at all. It's ironic, and I think that uh, Luke uses splendor, splendid irony when he quotes in verse 39, Simon's thought, 
If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, he's just thinking that, and Jesus knows what he's thinking because he is a prophet, and more than a prophet, he is God in human flesh, but uh, Simon is doubting that he's a prophet. And then you'll notice down in verse 49, the dinner guests repeat the same question. They ask, who is this man who even forgives sins? And it's not the first time in Luke's gospel that question has been raised. It pops up several times. Back in chapter 5 and uh, verse 21, the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, begin to reason when Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic who was let down through the roof. And they reason and say, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Precisely. See, if you sin against me, I can forgive you. If you sin against somebody else, I can't forgive you. You didn't sin against me. So who can forgive sins? The one against whom they have sinned, who is God. And again, we'll see the question raised in Luke chapter 8, after Jesus stills the storm at sea, and the disciples say, uh, they're amazed, and they say to one another in Luke 8, 25, who is this then that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? And so this question, who is Jesus, occurs throughout Luke because he wants you to reflect on it because that is the crucial question we all need to answer. And Luke wants us to know this is not merely a prophet. Uh, this one is the one whose law this sinful woman had broken. And as God in human flesh, Jesus rightly could forgive her sins. Now, having met the main characters, let's come back to the question I raised at the start. Okay, how can I develop this kind of fervent love for Jesus that this sinful woman had, especially if my background is more like Simon's background, kind of squeaky clean, than the woman's background, being a prostitute. And Jesus answers that question in the story he tells in verses 41 to 43 about the two debtors. And he brings out three simple truths. The first truth is to love Jesus fervently, you have to realize your great debt your great debt. Both parties are in debt. The greater debtor pictures the sinful woman probably, while the lesser debtor is the Pharisees, but I think in God's sight, the woman is not necessarily the greater debtor. They're both in debt. Outwardly, as people see things, yes, the prostitute's the greater debtor, um, <clears throat> but, you know, God looks at the heart. And in his heart, the Pharisee was guilty of pride and self-righteousness, which are serious sins. And God also judges according to the light that a person has received and rejected. And as a Pharisee, Simon had a lot of light. He had studied the Torah and 
all of the prophets, the Old Testament writings, and so on. And to sin against clear light is uh, more serious than to sin in ignorance, although both are sins. Also, I believe God takes into account the various circumstances that a person is in. We see that in his comments in Luke, I mean in Matthew 11, where he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah and says the sins are going to be worse for Capernaum in that day than they were for Sodom and Gomorrah. For if they had seen the miracles that Capernaum had seen, they would have repented. That's quite an intriguing statement. But we don't know why this woman had gotten into prostitution, but I can guarantee you this. No young woman, especially in ancient Israel, sat down as a teenager and said, I think I'd like a career as a prostitute, you know? That's a good career. No, there had been difficult, hard circumstances that had forced her into that degrading uh, profession, if you want to call it that. And God knew all of that. And again, who is to say, if you or I had brought, been brought up in Afghanistan or India or some of these places where the gospel is very dim, if at all, who is to say what our circumstances would be? So we don't know which of the two really was the 500 denarii sinner and which was the 50 in God's sight. We know in man's sight which was which. But I think Jesus couches the story this way to draw Simon's neck into the noose. Because Simon would be thinking, that's right, I only owe the 50. She owes the 500. Well, he's just admitted he owes 50. <laughs> See? He, he is a debtor as well as she is, and he might not be in quite as deep as the woman, but before you can love the Lord who paid your debt, you have to come to see, I am in debt, as Romans 3.23 plainly proclaims, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, or Romans 3.10, there is none righteous not even one. And so you have to come to acknowledge, I am a debtor. I am a sinner. I am guilty before the holy God, before you can love Jesus fervently. The second thing is to love Jesus fervently, you have to realize your utter inability to repay your debt. Jesus says both debtors were unable to repay, verse 42. Now, if you can't repay, you can't repay. You're broke. Broke is broke. Whether you're 500 denarii broke or 50 denarii broke, broke is broke. I mean, which person is in bigger trouble, the guy who's drowning in 500 feet of water or the guy who's drowning in 50 feet of water? You know, they're both drowning. And it would be ridiculous you know, for the guy in 50 feet of water to look at the guy in 500 feet and say, at least I'm better off than that poor guy. <laughs> no, you're both drowning, you know, and you both need a rescuer. You both need a savior. And it would be ridiculous for the guy in 500 feet of water to say, if I can just swim over to where the guy in 50 feet is, I'll be good. But yet, you know, sinners often think like that. The self-righteous sinner thinks, huh, 
I'm better off than that degraded drug dealer or prostitute or gangster or child molester or whatever he is, you know. I'm better than he is, but he's a 50 denary debtor. Or maybe the guy who's in 500 feet of water says, you know, if I can just get over to where the guy in 50 feet is, I'll be good before God. So he works at cleaning up his life and doing all the good deeds and trying to, you know, polish up the outside so that he looks good, but he's still a debtor. He's still guilty, and he can't repay. And to love Jesus much, you have to come to the point where whether you're a 50 denarii debtor or a 500 denarii debtor, you realize I'm broke and I can't repay my debt. That's my need. I need someone to pay my debt for me. And you see, all your good deeds would be like trying to put frosting on a moldy cake. You're covering it up, but inside there's a problem. The cake is moldy. And all the good frosting is worthless if the cake is no good. In his autobiography, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great British preacher, spends a long chapter, I, if you can get it and read it, it is worth reading, of the agony that he went through in his soul for five years from age 10 to age 15 before he came to salvation. Outwardly, Spurgeon was a Bible-reading, everyday Bible-reader, church-going, son of a pastor, in Victorian England. Outwardly, you can't get much more squeaky clean than that. They didn't have cell phones to look at porn or other garbage. Uh, <clears throat> they didn't even have porn magazines. Uh, they didn't have all that stuff, and yet Spurgeon goes on and on and on about how the Spirit of God took him deeper and deeper in seeing his own pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and unbelief. I'm sure that today, if your 10-year-old and uh, 10 up to 15-year-old did that, you would get an appointment with a Christian shrink. But there weren't such things in that day either, thankfully. And <clears throat> Spurgeon observes that much of what he calls the flimsy piety of his day, and I think those comments are still true for today, it was due to the fact that people profess salvation without any deep conviction of sin. And he said this, <clears throat> Too many think lightly of sin, and thus, therefore, think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God convicted and condemned with the rope about his neck. I love that line. There you are on the scaffold. The rope is around your neck. <clears throat> and the executioner just has to pull the trap door, and you're doomed. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned with the rope about his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he's pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. There's a very popular Bible teacher and puts on conferences and writes books, who makes the statement that Christians should not see themselves as sinners. And he says we shouldn't even see ourselves as sinners saved by grace, but only, he says, rather 
uh, he says, we should see ourselves as saints who occasionally sin. And I contend the guy is minimizing sin and therefore minimizing the Savior who saved us from sin. Or I'll often hear, too, statements from uh, professing Christians saying, I am worthy. No, you're not. If you're worthy, you aren't a recipient of grace because grace is un for the unworthy. If, if it's worthy, you earned it. If it's unworthy, then it's grace. And <clears throat> I think the testimony of the Bible and the testimony of all the Christian biographies I've read and my own experiences, the more you come to see in the Bible the absolute holiness of God, you'll see your own sinfulness and then you will see the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. And you'll love Jesus more because you'll say, oh man, without his grace and his substitutionary death on the cross for me, I would be lost. I would be lost. And so that leads to the third thing. To love Jesus fervently, first, you have to realize your great debt. Secondly, you have to realize your utter inability to repay your debt. And then finally, to love Jesus fervently, you have to trust totally in his grace to forgive your unpayable debt of sin. It says in verse 42, when they were unable to repay, don't miss the next words, he graciously forgave them both. That ought to make your heart leap for joy. He graciously forgave them both. The 500 denarii person and the 50 denarii person. And you say, well, why did he do that? Did he look at their character and say, well, you know, I, I see potential in you. I, I think you're worthy. I think you're going to make it. And yep, yep, I'll pick you on my team because of who you are. No. They were both unworthy. They were both debtors. They were both unable to pay their debt. And he forgave them graciously. And it stems totally from him and not at all from them. Now, don't misinterpret the text at this point because some commentators, usually Roman Catholic commentators, based on verse 47 argue that the woman's love for Christ merited her forgiveness. That's backwards. Jesus plainly states in verse 50 what saved her. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And the point of Jesus' story in verses 41 to 43 is obviously that forgiveness precedes and results in love, not vice versa. So I think Jesus in verse 47, when he says this woman has, has been forgiven much for she loved much, is saying her fervent love for Jesus is evidence of the great forgiveness she had received which had preceded it. Um, it's like we might say it's raining for the window is wet. We don't mean the wet window made it rain. No, the rain made the window wet. And it was the forgiveness that caused this woman's fervent love for Jesus, not vice versa. She didn't 
conjure up love for Jesus, and he said, okay, I guess you got enough love, I'll forgive you. That's works-based. Rather, salvation is by grace, through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's always the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so to love Jesus fervently, to sum it up, realize, first of all, your great debt. Realize your utter inability to repay the debt. And then trust totally in God's grace, his unmerited favor to forgive it. And the more you see your debt, and the more you see your inability to repay that debt, the more you will see how much the Savior did for you when he took your penalty on himself on the cross and paid the debt that you owe. And that will lead you to love Jesus more and more. I'm praying this morning that two groups will take this message to heart. First of all, maybe like me, you grew up in the church and you're very familiar with the things of God. Maybe too familiar. You can quote John 3.16 while you're yawning. Ho-hum. God so loved the world. Gave his only begotten son. Whoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Yes, let's move on. No, no, no. That needs to move your heart. That needs to move you. The gospel should touch your heart as you realize what God did for you in sending his son. And so one prayer I've had this week is that all of us who grew up in the church would think often about how much God has forgiven us and grow in more fervent love for Jesus. The other group would be any who are here who may be like this woman. Maybe nobody knows your past or your present. Maybe nobody knows all the sins you've racked up. You've kind of kept them undercover, but you know. And you're racked with guilt. And you think at times, I don't see how God could ever forgive me. You're like the 500 denarii debtor. But notice, the Lord graciously forgave them both. Isn't that wonderful? Paul said, I was the chief of sinners, but I found mercy so that in me there might be an example of God's grace. And there's good news for every sinner. If you come to the cross, you don't have to give, become a 50, you know, pay it off till you only owe 50. No, bring your 500 to the cross and trust in Jesus. And he bore all of that on the cross for you. And that's the best news in the whole world. And the Lord has given us a means by which we can stir up our love for him. We're going to do it in just a moment. It's called the Lord's Supper. And we do it every week. And you say, well, yeah, it's kind of a ritual, isn't it? It can become that, but it shouldn't be. Because Jesus said, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And so when we partake of the bread and of the juice, it should remind us of the great price that was paid that God could graciously forgive our debt because of what Jesus did. You notice, again, Jesus' words in verse 40. Simon, I have something to say to you. Put your name in there. I have something to say to you, Jesus says. And 
what he wants to say to you is, there's a way for your sins to be forgiven. And the way is seen by this prostitute who came to Jesus and he clearly says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And if you want to go in peace this morning with your conscience clear from all your sins, come to Jesus and trust in him. He is a gracious, merciful sinner far beyond what we can imagine. And throughout eternity, we'll be discovering the riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Dear Father, I pray that the words from your word would touch our hearts, that we would not grow complacent, that we would not grow ho-hum about the greatest truth in the world, that our sins, which are many, can be forgiven through what Jesus did on the cross. I pray if any are here who have not tasted of your grace, today would be the day that your spirit would open their eyes and their hearts to the love of Jesus on the cross, that they would be saved. And for any of your children who maybe have grown kind of complacent or routine about the gospel, that you would stir our hearts up to love you more and more. And I ask in Jesus' name and for your glory, amen.